This is 105.9 The Region, where parents talk and explore practical, proactive, and evidence-based solutions. This is Where Parents Talk with Leanne Castellino. Great to have you along here on Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Leanne Castellino. As we do in every show, we are going to spend the next 30 minutes unpacking a current hot topic in parenting. Our guest today is an award-winning journalist who began her career at 60 Minutes on CBS. She is a frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. Jennifer Wallace is also an author and a mother of three. Her first book is called Never Enough, When Achievement Pressure Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. Jennifer joins us today from New York. Welcome to Where Parents Talk. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Such a timely, resonant, relevant, important topic for the times that we live in. It seems like you hear about the competitive world, the prevalence of achievement culture, as you've termed it, being applied on our children. What was the tipping point for you as a mother and as a journalist to write a book on this topic? I think it started a few years ago when I uh, began writing, well, 10 years ago, when I began writing for the Wall Street Journal about a lot of topics that were personally interested, interesting to me as a parent of three teens. And I was trying to figure out why was my children's childhood so different from my own? Why, you know, why, why was I seeing the pressure building in my own home and in my kids' friends' lives? And then in 2019, the varsity blues scandal hit. And I'm not sure if you remember that, but that was parents on both coasts who got wrapped up in illegal schemes to win their kids' spots in places like the University of Southern California. And I, at that point, I really thought, well, this is extreme. Now, what is it that's causing parents to risk going to jail, to break the law, to get their kids into a brand name school, uh, a highly selective school? And I wasn't buying the narrative that was popular in the media, that parents just wanted the bumper sticker on the back of their car. They wanted bragging rights. I just didn't believe that. My gut instinct as a reporter was that there was something deeper going on. And so I spent three and a half years digging into the deep roots of our achievement culture to see what it was in our environment that had changed from my own upbringing to my kids. That is a very interesting journey you set yourself up for. And I'm curious, Where did you start? What was your starting point when you talk about digging into the roots? And what have you discovered are some of the root causes of this achievement culture that we're talking about? Yeah, so I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just uh, pressure that was being felt on the East Coast or the West Coast. Um, I wanted to make sure it was that this was actually a thing. And so I worked with a um, researcher at the Harvard Graduate School of Education to conduct a first of its kind parenting survey. So the researcher and I wrote the questions and I can read you a few of them um, and some of the answers, which were surprising to me. Um, And he said to me, we need to get a sample size of a thousand in order to really see patterns. And I thought, okay, great. Within a few days, uh, the uh, over 6,500 parents had, had filled out the survey. It had, in the words of a researcher, it had a snowball effect. So parents were, were sharing it on social media, sending it to colleagues in their office, parents on the PTA, sending it out to classes. And we 
discovered that the pressure that I was finding was not an East Coast and West Coast problem. It was being felt in Alaska, in Canada, um, in Washington State, in Maine, in Texas, in Louisiana. We heard from almost every state, England and also uh, Canada. Um, and I'll read you a couple of questions um, that I found that were interesting. Um, so I asked parents about the burdens and expectations of parenting. Did it did it leave them anxious, stressed, or unhappy? Uh, 62% of parents that I surveyed strongly agreed that today's parenting left them stressed. Uh, when I asked them, how much they agreed with this statement. I feel responsible for my children's achievement and success. 75% of parents agreed that they felt responsible for their children's achievement and success. And then I'll read you one more. I wish today's childhood was less stressful for my kids. 87% of parents agreed with that statement. So I, at the end of the survey, I asked parents if they'd be willing to be interviewed either anonymously or with their names attached to please reach out. And over hundreds of parents reached out. And so I went on the ground um, before COVID and then I stopped during COVID and then I got vaccinated. I went back out again um, and I interviewed hundreds of families. And I also interviewed historians and economists, psychologists, researchers to find out what, like you were asking me, what these roots causes were. And there were a few threads, but the one that resonated the most with me and the most with the researchers who are studying um, these this population of youth said that it was the macroeconomic forces that had changed so dramatically from the 1970s and early 80s when I was being raised to today. So back in the you know, 70s and early 80s, life was generally more affordable. Housing was more affordable. Healthcare in the United States was more affordable. Um, higher education in the US was more affordable. And then over the last several decades, we have ushered in, specifically in the US, but also being seen elsewhere in the world, um, a steep inequality, a crush of the middle class, the pressures of globalization, hyper competition. And what researchers are finding is that parents are absorbing these fears and anxieties about our economic future, and it is coming out in their parenting behaviors. So this is not to blame parents. This is just to say that parents are absorbing the pressure and doing what we have always done as parents, which is try to set us, our kids up for a successful adulthood when we're no longer allowed around to guide them. So um, this, the pressures that I found, you know, as I'm saying, are, are bigger than any one family, any one school, and any one community. When you break it down that way, and when you share those questions and those statistics, which, by the way, jump off the page, so I can only imagine, you know, how you process them as a sort of being the leader of this, of this exercise, when you talk about parents absorbing this information, in what specific ways does this achievement culture manifest itself in households, both from a child's perspective and from a parent's? So from a child's perspective, you know, I would say what I was noticing with my own children's schedule was, you know, how much freedom I had, how much more of a relaxed childhood I had versus my children. And, um, you know, the, their schedules are very much 
akin to busy executives. We resisted that as much as I could in my house because I valued family time. But if you if you want your kid to play soccer in high school, well, they like you to start at age five and six now with intensive soccer four days a week and weekend tournaments. Um, and so I'd say for kids, it manifests in really busy schedules, little downtime, compromise of family time, um, and also that the bar of what achievement looks like today is ever rising. You used to compete against the kids in your neighborhood or the kids in your school. Now with social media, kids are competing at these huge, enormous levels. Um, for a parent's life, you know, it it looks as though in in many cases we work for our kids, right? We <laughs> we go to work so we could afford the extracurricular activities, the education costs, and then we spend our weekends shepherding them around to soccer games, to debate tournaments, to chess tournaments. So it is a culture where we are incredibly busy and it is taking time away from things that as a society, we used to think were important, like closeness as a family. One mother I interviewed in Alaska told me that her children never knew what it was like to gather around the family table on Thanksgiving because her kids always had sports tournaments that weekend. So they never knew the extended family and what it was like to have a traditional American Thanksgiving. That's a lot of change. And I would argue, and, and the research finds, that change is not good for families, it's not good for parents, and it's not good for kids. The natural follow-up question to that, Jennifer, is how do you stop, how do you stem the tide of, of being part of that competitive world, of being part of the achievement culture as a parent, noting, as you did, that we live in uniquely challenging times as parents, uh, seeing things that we've never seen before as moms and dads in the world we live in today. How do you go about saying, you know what, we're going to do things differently in our household? So for the book, I went in search of the healthy strivers. I wanted to know what were what did they have in common, if anything? What did their parents focus on at home? What were their relationships like? Um, what was school life for them? And I found about 15 common threads that these healthy achievers had in common. And as I was looking for a framework to present to parents and to educators, I came across a psychological construct called mattering. Mattering, it has, it's been around since the 1980s. Um, it is the idea of feeling valued for who we are deep at our core and being dependent on to add meaningful value back to our families, to our schools, to our communities. So what the parents of these healthy achievers did were several things. Number one, they prioritized the message at home that they that they mattered aside from any of their external achievements, that their mattering was, it didn't ride on the ups and downs of their lives. So one, I'll give you just a, a really tangible example. One mother I met of these healthy achievers, as I define them, um, told me about something she does when her kids come, come home with a failure or when they don't do well on a test or if friends aren't being very kind to them and they're feeling kind of iced out socially. She goes into her wallet and she takes out a $20 bill 
And she says to her adolescent, do you want this money? And they say, undoubtedly, yes. And then she crinkles it up, dramatically puts it on the floor, dirties it up, picks it up, dunks it in a glass of water, and then holds up this $20 bill again. It's soggy, it's dirty. And she says to her child, do you still want this? And the child says, yes. And she says, like this $20 bill, your worth never changes. Whether you get an A on a test or an F, whether you make the A team or you get cut from the team, your worth is your worth no matter what. So one of the things that I I would start in my home, which I did do in my home after doing the research, was to spend as much time as I could buffering against the toxic messages that our kids are receiving you know, in school, among their classmates, on social media, in the media, that their worth is contingent. And I, I, as much as I can, I remind them. And it is a daily, it has to be a daily reminder because the messages in our culture are strong and they are absorbing them. So the researchers find that for parents to, to act as buffers, we need to do, we need to focus on two things, minimize criticism and prioritize affection. So minimize criticism. It doesn't mean that you don't have standards. It doesn't mean that you don't, you know, um, when it comes to standards, for example, I, I asked psychologist Lisa Damore, how could I, um, you know, encourage my child to achieve without overly pressuring them? And she told me to focus on how work gets done at home, not the shiny outcome. So in our home, we have a rule of how work gets done. It it gets done after you come home after a short break with a snack and maybe a few minutes on your device. And then you buckle down and you sit at your desk and your phone goes in my bedroom charging so that you're not constantly interrupted. And you do your work for 20, 30 minutes at, at a time. And then you can get up and stretch and check your phone and then go back. So what I've done at home is I've really focused on the work habits to help scaffold, you know, scaffold my child with achievement. And that is sending a different message than you need to get an A. You are listening to Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. I'm Leanne Castellino in conversation with Jennifer Wallace, award-winning journalist and author of Never Enough. Time for a short break. More of Where Parents Talk when we come back. Stay with us. Want to learn more about the show? Email info at whereparentstalk.com. Stick around. Leanne Castellino and Where Parents Talk will be right back on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to Where Parents Talk. Listen live at 1059theregion.com. Here's Leanne Castellino. Welcome back. We are talking about achievement culture and ways parents can support their kids to overcome or simply avoid achievement pressure altogether. Award-winning journalist and author Jennifer Wallace is our guest. Her first book is called Never Enough. Jennifer, I want to pick up on something you said before the break. It is a fine line between helping a child to pursue excellence and then potentially damaging them because many parents think they're doing it out of love. How do you respond to that based on your research? And what can you offer a parent who may be truly struggling with that concept? I would first say, get an awareness of the messages you are sending at home. 
What is the environment like in your home? And Tina Payne Bryson, who's a psychoanalyst, gave me four questions um, that I found helpful in my own home. So first she said, take a look at your child's calendar. See how many hours a day they are doing things outside of school that have an achievement bent. Then look at how you spend your money as a, as a parent. How much money is going towards achievement type activities? Then reflect on what you ask your kids about every day. What are the things when you get home from work or when they get home from school, what are you asking them about their day? Is it what they ate for lunch? You know, who they, who they sat next to, or is it, how did they do on that quiz? And then the last question, which I found really helpful as well is, what do you argue with your child about? She said, if you answer those four questions, it will give you a sense of what you are prioritizing in the home. So I would say, start with reflecting. The next thing I would do is to get really clear on your personal values. So I interviewed this wonderful researcher who's the leading researcher on how values impact mental health. His name is Tim Kasser. And he talked about how we all have, you know, roughly a dozen common values, no matter where we live in the world. And it's the environment that we surround ourselves in that activates certain values. So if your kids are going to a competitive school, you live in a competitive community, those values of achievement, of materialism, of external rewards, those are going to be activated. And what his research and other research finds is that that is heavily linked with negative mental health outcomes. People who, who are overly consumed with what he calls materialistic values, not just logos, but career status, you know, salary status, um, they are more likely to suffer from anxiety, depression, and have a substance abuse disorder than people who live their lives pursuing more intrinsic values. And that means being a caring member of the family, being a caring member of society, being, you know, caring about the greater good, caring about things other than your own self-enhancement. So at home, as a parent, I would get clear about my values, and I have, and I would make sure that my schedule, my kids' schedule, reflect those values. But another pain point in many households and with many families is the fear of missing out. If they are cutting back on things for their kids to, again, you know, adhere to the values that everybody has agreed to, et cetera, et cetera, but everybody else out there is doing X, Y, and Z, now my child is missing out. How would you say that a parent can counter or not be impacted by that? So I think about motivation, motivating our kids in two ways. I think of dirty fuel, which is, you know, getting them to hit those, those goals, you know, trying out for the travel team, getting an A on the Spanish quiz on Friday, all of these kind of short-term things. A parent can motivate with dirty fuel to get those short-term things like with criticism or comparing a child, um, because the stress of trying to meet all of those goals weighs on a parent, or you can look at the, a longer term gain and motivate with what I call a healthy fuel, a clean fuel. And that fuel is by shoring up our children's mattering, making them feel like no matter what they are valued at home and their value does not rest on their accomplishments. And what happens when you do that paradoxically, you know, it feels counterintuitive, but when you do that, you set a child up to achieve, to not be afraid of failure 
because they don't think they're going to be criticized. They don't think their whole worth is on the line. So for parents, I would say start thinking about how you can implement long-term clean fuel because the more your child believes in themselves and their own self-worth as separate from their achievements, the greater chance they have to achieve. It, and I found this among the high achievers I met, that the kids who were willing to go for it, who were not afraid of failure, who reached for higher goals, believed that their worth was not contingent on their performance. Those parents had instilled in them a healthy kind of fuel that drove them. The kids I met who had this real contingent sense of mattering, which was, I only matter when, they were less likely to reach for the high goals. They were also more likely to burn out. What would you say surprised you most in the course of conducting the research that you did and putting together your book? I would say the number one takeaway for me um, is that for any child in distress, decades of research, re research on resilience focus now on one thing, that to protect a suffering child, you need to make sure the primary caregiver, most often the mother, that her well-being, her mental health is intact because a child's resilience rests fundamentally on their caregiver's resilience. And a caregiver's resilience rests fundamentally on the depth of their relationships. And it's not that the parents I met didn't have friends. It's that living in our busy achievement culture, they didn't have time to invest so deeply in friendships so that they could be a source of support when they needed it. And so many of these parents were suffering alone. Um, and because of that, they had less bandwidth to act as a first responder to their children's struggles. So I would say the 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 big takeaway for me, which really, you know, I had to change my ways was to focus on my prioritize my own well-being and resilience, not just for myself, but for the well-being of my entire family. The research you conducted, the people you tapped into for their expertise, all of it helped you to build a framework and a toolkit for Never Enough. Can you take us through some examples of the toolkit that you'd like to share with parents? Just as to zoom out quickly. So uh, the book is really, uh, it offers practical tools and a, and a shifting mindset. But I've gone even further because I had so many parents, early readers read the book and say, oh my gosh, you've convinced me. Now I need more. And so with a group of co-founders, I have started something called the matteringmovement.com where parents can have, you know, uh, super practical toolkits that they can use at home. So, you know, one of uh, just thinking of a few things, like it's about, you know, one of them is, is the messaging that we give to our kids, messages of mattering versus messages that over-prioritize achievement. So just one little small tweak you could make today is when your child comes home from school, you could lead with lunch. You could say, "What you know? What did you have for lunch today? Where where'd you sit? Who'd you sit with?" Um, they are going to tell you about the quiz. Rest assured, they are going to tell you. They are getting messages in the environment from their teachers, from their classmates, from their classmates' parents that achievement is so important. They will tell you. 
and do what you can to satisfy your own anxieties so that you're not putting them on your child. So anyway, lead with lunch is something that I would uh, strongly recommend. One other thing, um, the kids that the healthy achievers that I met who had this strong sense of mattering felt valued for who they were at their core, but they were also depended on to add meaningful value back to their families, to their schools, to their communities. So these healthy achievers, these the parents of these healthy achievers relied on their kids. They gave them meaningful ways to give back to the family, whether it was through chores or um, you know, helping with younger siblings. They were depended on. And what, you know, our kids are so busy today as parents, you know, we we want to alleviate that stress, but actually that dependence and reliance offers a child social proof that they matter. They could hear that they matter in your words, but then they also need proof that they matter. And so as a parent, I would say really focus at home on what you can do to add meaningful value to your children's lives. Were there any specific examples, Jennifer, of how the process of writing your first book impacted you to the point of how you parent your three teenagers? Yeah. So I, one, another big takeaway from me was that, you know, the goal of parenting we are told is to raise, you know, in independent, self-reliant adults. And yes, that's important, but there's a greater lesson I've come to learn if we really want to raise healthy adults, and that is to give them the skills of interdependence. That means being relied on and also relying on others in healthy ways. And I think in our ever rising competitive culture, a lot gets in the way of healthy interdependence. And so in my home, I model it. So for example, my daughter was um, struggling with a paper in seventh grade and she considers herself a really good writer. And the teacher gave her her first draft back and it was a lot of edits, a lot of marks. And she came really upset to me, home to me. And I said, okay, hold on. And I pulled up my first article that I wrote eight or 10 years ago for the Washington Post science section. And I pulled it up and there were, she saw red marks from my editor everywhere. And she was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they still let you write for them with this, <laughs> with this back. <laughs> and I said, you know, at first when I saw all these red marks, I was a little embarrassed to need so much help. But then I thought about it another way. And I thought, wow, this seasoned editor really believed in me. She was investing in me as a writer. And so I took her suggested edits and I've been writing for the Washington Post ever since. So what I've taught my kids is that, um, you know, we don't get anywhere without the help of others. And I try to model that any success I've ever had as a writer or as a human or as a parent is directly the result of the help that I, the unbelievable amount of help I've gotten along the way. So I think we need to point that out to our kids that we are not self-made, you know, this is a particularly very American ethos to pull yourselves up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, they say it. Um, have you ever tried to do that? Because it's literally impossible. I mean, just <laughs> it's impossible. I've tried. Mm -hmm. So show your kids this is not what real life is about. Lean on others, ask for help and never worry alone. That's the other big takeaway that I've taken in my that I've brought into my house. Um, the psychologist, psychiatrist, sorry, um, Edward Hallowell writes about 
the idea of never worrying alone. And I would say it's true for adults as well as for kids. If you never worry alone, you will be okay. Lots of important food for thought. Jennifer Wallace, journalist and author of Never Enough, When Achievement Pressure Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. Thank you for sharing your insight with us today. Thank you so much for having me on. Be sure to watch the full video interview with Jennifer Wallace and all of our guests on the show at whereparentstalk.com. I'm Leanne Castellino. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time, happy parenting. Sign up for Leanne's parenting newsletter and so much more at whereparentstalk.com. This is Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region.